All right, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 15 as we continue the endless slog through the life of David. Is anybody getting tired of David a little bit? It feels like it's never going to end, but it will end, okay? So, chapter 15. Let's do a quick review, you guys. Who is Absalom? Son of David. Very good, Linda. Okay, now Absalom has had... Depending on how you slice the pie, three or four things that have really upset him lately. What are the, we'll, we'll go three. What, what, are, what are the things that have really been on Absalom's unhappy list? Nick, give me one. Uh, his sister getting uh, Yeah. Brother. Stepbrother. Stepbrother, or half-brother. Yeah, half-brother, that's it. So yeah, so number one. His sister, Tamar, was raped by his half-brother, Amnon. And this was a source of deep distress to him. Very good. All right. Number two. What else is going down with this guy? His dad wouldn't see him. So somewhere in between him being unhappy with, with Amnon and his dad not seeing him, what happened? So he kills Amnon, right? So having killed his brother, he gets banished and his dad won't have anything to do with him. And so he's really upset about that. So first his brother rapes his sister. Then he kills him. And then he, his father banishes him. And that's tough. And then what's the third thing? He allows him to come back to Jerusalem, but he does not see him for two years. That's right. He allows him. He ends the banishment, but not really. Like, you can come back to Jerusalem, but you can't see me. And he's like, well, it wasn't. It wasn't about Jerusalem, it was about you. So even when he thinks his banishment has ended, his estrangement has ended, not really. Um, and then, you know, David, kept, you know, David hears this language of the, the Lord devises ways so that banished persons will not remain estranged from him, right? But that's not really Amnon's experience. Okay, so, uh, I mean, Absalom's experience. So things have been pretty tough. And now we're going to see, we could title this chapter Absalom's Revenge if you wanted to. There's a lot of pent-up rage. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. Which is not to say that Absalom's a good guy. All right, there's no white hats in this section of the Bible. Everything's just a mess. Um, but with all that, all that is necessary background of what's going to happen in chapter 15. All right? Now, as we go through chapter 15, there's going to be four significant characters. David and Absalom, of course, are really significant. But there's four relatively new, new-to-us names that you're going to want to just watch for them. Okay? And they're all weird names. It's a hit. Uh, excuse me, Ahithophel, and I'm probably going to butcher all of them, but whatever. Okay, Ahithophel, Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai. Forgive me if you know Hebrew and I don't, right? But Ahithophel, Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai, they're all going to have significant role in what's about to unfold. All right, you ready? Chapter 15, let's see. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Okay, lots going on here. What, what are some of your most, what are the most obvious observations you'd make about this? What's happening here? Go, Bob. He's planting seeds. He's a good politician. 
Right. It's, I mean, you all get the political vibe big time, right? There's all kinds of these planting seeds, suggesting things in their minds, very much so. Anne, did you want to say something? Oh, just that he's absorbing his dad. Yeah, he's preparing to usurp his dad. This is all part of a plan. Very good. Any other things obvious to you here, Terry? It's probably a lie. What's probably a lie? That, that there's, why is he saying there's no representation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so every politician, I mean, every Democrat loves to act like when the Republicans are in power, they do nothing good. Every Republican likes to act like the Democrats, when they're in power, do nothing good, right? And so that, I mean, that's just so, such standard fare, for sure, right? Okay, now there's a few more interesting clues here. Oh, yeah, go ahead. He's building rapport with people. Yes. Like getting their trust and making himself available. Yeah, so Mike is saying that he, he's building rapport with the people, and we're going to see even more of that, Michael. He's going to, like, he's really going to kick up the baby kiss and charm in the next paragraph. This is very much of this vibe, okay? Now, that's all, that's all present and true, um, but let's remember, there's, there's more. The narrator is even is telling us more things that we might miss if we haven't, if we're not remembering other passages of Scripture. So, we've already seen that there's some tags on Absalom, um, what, what did we see in the previous chapter that might seem like innocuous details, but that were really code language for, what, for Absalom's character? Do you remember? Say it again. He's handsome. Okay, so what does that draw our line to? It's not, there's nothing wrong with being handsome, right? I mean, right? Okay. <laughs> Wait, say it again, Bob. Yes. Okay, that is absolutely within the Samuel narrative, within David's storyline, like the good looking guy is Saul and that's kind of shady and this, there's a sense of, so this reminds us that Absalom is kind of being cast in villainous terms. Kosu? Showing up early in the morning in a chariot and horse and he's got guys Okay, it does. Now listen, so the Kelly made an observation here. So there's this whole thing about him, you know, he's got chariot and horses and 50 men running ahead of him, which on the one hand, you could read that and just think, okay, I get it. You're driving a Rolls Royce, right? I mean, it has the vibe of you're wealthy, you're successful, you have attendance. It's got this, it's kind of this Kardashian kind of vibe to it, right? Okay, that's all there. But there's more to it than that, right? Herrick? Dude's like Fabio, yeah. He is Fabio, right? It totally is, right? But, but listen, I'm going I'm to read you something. There's very specific, that, that phrase, that, that little picture is not meant to just suggest in general vanity or in general, you know, a love of power and fame. It's very precise. You'll, you will, I will convince you of this effortlessly in about 10 seconds, okay? So go back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 to the time when the people were clamoring for a king. We want a king! All these other nations have a king, and all we have is a god, and that's lame. And so we want a king like the other nations have. And God's like, do you, though? I mean, really? Is that really how you want this to play out? And then he tells them what it's going to be like to have a king, all right? And so this is the warning language, right? It's 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 10. Tell me if you don't hear a bit of an echo here, okay? Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said... This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Right? Is that familiar? 
Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariot. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take, <coughs> excuse me, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your men servants and maid servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. You get it? When he says, and he's running with horses and chariots, and he's saying, remember 1 Samuel 8? Be wary of this guy, right? He's good looking, but the Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. He's hairy like Esau. He's going to be a manipulator. He runs with horses and chariots. This is precisely verbatim what I warned you of. And the people are like, he's amazing, right? This is, this is, the, this is the warning that's going on. So as, if you're reading the Samuel narrative closely, when you get to this line, you don't merely think of his, uh, you know, his fame, but you realize, oh, 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 this is what you said, right? Now, most normal people, would not catch that the first time through, right? This is details, this is blah, 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 blah. But this is why we don't, we don't just read the scriptures once through and then shelf it, right? You read it and then you read it again. And it, like probably literally, like for me, it'd be like the 10th time through that I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, a horse is chariot. And it might even be that I don't even notice it Absalom, but you know, later on, if I read 1 Samuel 8, or first, what is it, 8 or 10? What did I say that was? 1 Samuel 8, 10. If I read that again in like three years, then I might remember, wait a minute, that reminds me of the Absalom thing. And stuff just falls into place. That's why it's like a 50-year book, right? It's a 50-year book. Over the course of your life, this thing is endlessly going to give up new secrets if you read it closely. It rewards diligent study. This meant something, right? That Absalom is bad news. Good enough? Okay. So Absalom's bad news. He's going to be like these kings, and, and the narrator knows it. He wants to do it. All right. Now, what's his, what is Absalom's... Um, entree. He, he clearly wants to be king. I think that's pretty transparent. But what aspect of the king, of kingship is he using as his on-ramp? Justice. Is that justice? Justice. That's right. His claim is like, I will hear you. If you have a complaint, come to me and I will, and I will hear your complaint. Okay. Now, that in, in an American jurisprudence system, that we don't, that's not like the job of the president is to hear the cases. But did you know that is absolutely the job of the king? Like, can you guys think, let's try to build a case that if Absalom wants to establish himself, if he wants to begin to smell like a king to the people, this is a smart play. Given that he's evil, not, his, his wickedness notwithstanding, it's a, it's a clever, it's a strategic, it's a um, shrewd play. Where else can you think of the kings of Israel functioning in that role? The leaders of Israel doing that. Yeah, John? Um, the uh, famous account of Solomon with the, uh, the two ladies that uh, uh, come forward uh, with Excellent. Yes, you guys remember that story? It's a famous account. One of the most famous stories in Solomon's narrative is that there are two women... And they both, I think, how does it go? Like they each had a baby. One of them died, but now there's one baby left. And they're both claiming that this was my baby. Do you remember that? And Solomon has, and so they, you know, this one says, this is my baby. The other one says, this is my baby. And Solomon doesn't have a DNA test, right? There's no way that he can prove it. And so what's his solution? <laughs> Cut the baby in half. 
And why is that a good solution? Because the real, because the, the mom who's just bitter is like, deal. You know, the one who lost her baby, what does she care? But the mom who is the really, say, no, 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 give her to him or give him to her, whatever. I forget if it's a boy or a girl, but give the baby away. She'd rather the baby live. And he's like, you're the real mom. Boom. Okay. Solomon's wisdom on that notwithstanding, the, what you see there is the king being asked to settle a dispute, right? That's a totally thing. Where else do you see that? Kings called Moses, big time. Okay. What's the most famous version of that with Moses? Moses totally burned himself out. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, Bill's saying, so we recall Moses as the ruler of Israel. He would, he would day by day, all day long, the people would come to him with their disputes. And so his father-in-law gets involved and says, dude, you're killing yourself. This is a foolish way to do it. And what was his solution? Do you remember? Delegate it out. You know, I have like, you know, lower courts and middle courts and superior courts. And then you, you're the Supreme Court. You deal with the hard ones. But my, come on, man. Like lots of people could solve these things. Paul, Paul addresses that in the New Testament. He's like, listen, any one of you, like any normal average person in the church should be able to solve these disputes. Like you're going to judge the angels, okay? So step it up. You can do this. You don't, need to be, you don't need to reserve all judgment to this one guy. Like any idiot should be able to figure out what to do about this, right? So it's a king thing. You see it with Moses. You see it with uh, Solomon. Any others? He strikes you. Gina? The prophet that came up to David to accuse him with Bathsheba, he was telling a story, but he was also pretending like he was looking for judgment for a uh, Yes, that's good. Okay, so when they come, even in David's rebuke, so he's going almost in that anti-role here, that there is, though, though they're using it to kind of entrap David into seeing his own complicitness, they're acting like, David, there's a dispute, and these one, this one you know, burned me out, and you need to give me justice. We just saw that a few chapters ago. Excellent. Very good. One more. Care? Kelly Sue? <coughs> Yes, the, t- the woman from Tekoa who made up a story and we're a little bit shady about, is she allowed to lie? Is, it, is she telling a story? Is she lying? All, whatever was up with that. Um, it was nevertheless, the assumption is that the king gets to be the judge, right? We saw Deborah do it. This is why, by the way, what, the rulers of Israel during that entire period of time that was such a cesspool, what were they called? Judges, right? So there's just this, all I have to say, Absalom is not, this is not novel. Absalom is just stepping into this tradition that the rulers of Israel decide disputes, okay? You think of the executive branch and the judicial branch as separate things, not so much here, right? He's functioning more like a Supreme Court justice. You're like, which job do you really want? Well, in Israel, they were kind of the same job, okay? Was there another hand? Somebody? Bob, did you? I was going to say the judges before you did it. It was implicit in, in many ways that there was judges, but there's throughout the whole book of Judges, and there was no king in Israel, you know. So it's almost like saying, so they had to have the judges. That's right. That's right. And that, yeah, that is the refrain. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. It goes on and on and on. Okay, so Absalom, he's, he's, a, he's a great baby kisser. He's got, a str- he's got a strategic role that he's kind of stepping into. And then here's where I think he's at his smarmy best. All right, look at five to seven. He says, also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. And Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Right? He's like very humble, and he's lowly, and he's just a, he's a baby kisser. All right? Um, but it's all subterfuge. All right. So... What's the plan? What's he going to do? Do you guys know? 
He's going to go somewhere. We'll watch it. We'll play it out. We'll see what happens. Seven to nine. Check it out. Four, he has four years of this. That's a lot of baby kissing. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Okay, so what's his, first of all, what's Hebron? Do we have any significance of that? Wait, say it again. Okay, safety, yeah, city of refuge. We're talking about the city of refuge. Very good. What's the most significant thing that has happened in Hebron? Oh, he killed Amnon in Hebron. Well, okay. Uh, that was in a field. I don't, that might be, I don't know, but I think I heard it right here. What is it? David became king there. That's it. David became king in Hebron, okay? So that is, the Hebron is the place that David was first crowned king over Judah, and that's where this whole thing is going to play out. There's probably strategic value. Hebron is defensible. It's not in Jerusalem, but it's near Jerusalem. And this is where he's going to be. But he's getting ready to make a play to become king in the exact same place where his father became king. Okay? And he has a pretense. What is the pretense that he should be allowed to go to Hebron? What is it, Anne? Sacrifice. But he was also from Hebron. So he had He had good... It's, that's right. And he's, gonna, it's, he's got good cover to go to Hebron, right? He's got relationships there. This is where his dad became king, so there's symbolic meaning there. But he's, he has to go because he's made, a, made an oath to the Lord, right? And that's a big deal. Yeah, real loud. Yeah, yeah there's something particularly evil about using God's name. Right. That's right. I mean, it's exactly right. So David, he's like, you know, if, if your kid comes to you and says, you know, uh, Mom, Dad, can I um, stay out all night because there's a, you know, there's a, I don't know, there's a, there's an all-night church service where we're worshiping Jesus. You're going to be like, all right, right? You can, I mean, that's, so he's, just, he's absolutely drafting off David's love of the Lord to go do this thing. But there's a little bit of a hint that it's false. What's the, what's the clue? What should a clue David in that uh, he might not be entirely forthcoming here? What's the? It's been four years, right? I promised the Lord that if he returned me to Jerusalem... Back in 2018, that I would go do this thing. So you could have, you, I mean, David could have been like, really? You made that promise four years ago. Why didn't you do it sooner? Right? But David, is, David, we've seen David in a state of passivity for quite some time now. And he's like, yeah, sure, go. And so he, off he goes to Hebron. But he doesn't go alone. Who does he bring with him? 400 or 200 people, right? He brings 200 people with him, which is also a strategic play. So he goes, he's basically 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, establishing his base of operations. He brings with him 200 men from Jerusalem. What do you think is the practical and strategic effect of that? How could that play out? 200 people is a lot of dudes. It would make him look strong. Absolutely. Right, this whole thing is about to be, there's about to be a coup. And so he's, he's basically strengthening his position weakening David's, he's getting, the, he's getting more swords on his side. And now that those guys are in Hebron with him, maybe they're with him and maybe they're not, but he's keeping, if they're his enemies, he's keeping them close, right? So he can keep an eye on them and they're not going to come march against him. And they, we don't know. It seems that they're probably innocent of the coup, but Absalom has handpicked them. We don't know exactly what's going on. But he has been biding his time. He's been building his case and he's getting ready to take, take everything from his father. 
all that David has been afraid of, all that the Lord had warned David of, is all about to come. You with me so far? All right. So he gives these guys, 200 guys, and take a look. Go down to 10 to 12. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. That's what they said about his dad. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They'd been invited as guests and went quite innocently. Okay, so we do know. They knew nothing about it. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, 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 his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Okay, this is the first of the four guys we want to track. Ahithophel. You guys remember anything about him? What is it, John? <coughs> Bathsheba's grandfather. Uh, this is, might not go well, right? This is Bathsheba's grandfather. He is the husband to this woman who's been shamed. He is the, or, I mean, he is the grandfather of the woman who's been shamed. He is the, whatever that would be, father-in-law, or what do you call it, father-in-law once removed here, to the one who was murdered. And they're just, all of that just might have had something to do, don't you think, with Ahithophel's loyalties being able to be pried away. He's been loyal to David for some time. But now he has a plausible alternative, and he takes it. Kelly? But he was David's counselor. Yes. Not just like, that's really trusting. Yeah. It is a massive betrayal, for sure. But you just have to wonder, if, when, when, it, when it goes down, I'm sure David, you know, you, you, could, you could, some betrayals really hurt. And you're like, how could you? And I, I just got to think that David's like, how could, uh, okay, all right, fine. You know, like. David knows that he, he blew that. But so, so Ahithophel gets peeled off. So he pulls these 200. He's going to have them with him. Ahithophel is now going to be in it. And that is a very, very significant ally. What would be, from Absalom's perspective, why is it beneficial to pick off Ahithophel? He knows David's inner workings, understands his dad better than he does. Absolutely. He's going to know. He's going to be able to think like David thinks, know who the players are. It's a massive strategic pull, for sure. Anything else? You'd add? That's what's going on there. Yeah, Chris? He just might have access to his father. Yeah, sure. So whether it's back channels, messengers, he might know who else might be peel offable. It's a, it's a major, major grab. And so he gets him. And, uh, and his allegiance or his alliance changes. Okay, so then David gets this cheery update. Look at verse 13. A messenger came and he told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. That's bad news. And so David is going to do something we've, we never see David do. What's David's response going to be? He flees, he folds, he's gone. Now we've seen him as an individual before he was in power fleeing from Saul back in those days. But since he's been king, he wins every war, right? But he is now her, okay, this guy, my son who I've banished and went through all that, he is now, he's in the place that I became king. They're screaming his name throughout the nation 200 of my inner people have gone. My, my closest counselor has left me. On P.S., I also murdered his, you know, family member. And the hearts of the men with Israel. He's, he, he craters. He folds. And so he's gone. He sees that it's over. And so in verse 14, Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately. Or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. 
so this is the least Davidic moment, right? And we, remember, we've been telling, we're watching, everything is great, it gets better and better and better. And from this point on, from the Bathsheba incident on, it's just going to get worse and worse. This is the most cowardly you're going to find David anywhere in the narrative. This is the least confident, the least militarily wise. This is, this is his low point. And who is his enemy? Who, is, who, is, who has a sword against his neck? His own son, all right? You see shame, you see humiliation, you see fear, you see weakness. This whole thing is just completely unraveled for David. It's a rough, rough moment, okay? And so he flees from Jerusalem. Um, do you think he was right? Do you think he had to flee? Was, was his flight an over-exaggerated fear because he's off his game? Or was, was that the right, was that as crummy as it was, was that the best play? What's your sense? I think it was the right play. You think it was the right play, Marty? I think he was, he, was a, he understood strategy and he saw the odds stacked against him, so I think it was right. Who's on Team Marty here? You guys think it was the right, or do you think, what do you think? Steve, what were you saying? You think it's the right play? All right, Lily? Well, it's hard to, to know how many people are with Absalom versus David because it says that the conspiracy grew strong and people were still joining when he started out with 200 people. I mean, David has all, more than that, are following him out of the city. I mean, he had just a roving huge band of people following him in the wilderness. He did. He needs to, in size, outstrip Absalom's followers, but obviously it's in the U.S. Yeah. So David certainly, I mean, David is used to running around in the woods, you know, in the desert with a huge band of these rough, you know, braggart, brigard, what do you call them, braggart? What's the word I'm looking for? Brigand type, you know? Um, uh, but here he's created, and maybe, maybe for good reason. Tommy? I, I don't see him calling out to God in any part of this. He's just making the decision to run on his own, on his own here. Yeah. As opposed to turning toward God or invoking God, that God will protect us or God will. Yeah. And as we flee. So Tommy, here's the interesting. So Tommy just said, I don't see him turning out to the Lord. We always see David's always in these terrible straits, and he inquires of the Lord, and then he makes this decision. He does a really good job of braiding together strategic, you know, human wisdom with a humble subordination to the Lord. And we haven't seen that yet. We will, good news is, he's going to catch his breath in just a minute. Okay, we're going to see that. But up until this point, we're, we're, we're not seeing it yet. You're totally right. Gary? Um, if David had stood his ground in Jerusalem and Jerusalem was under siege, then a lot of innocent citizens would probably die. And that d so he may have been thinking, I'll be better off out in the country. Yes. Fight in the fields or wherever. Okay, so did you hear that? Gary's saying like, it may be that David's not merely concerned with his own well-being, but the, that of the people of Jerusalem, that they're going to get overrun. And I think that's right because he uses a lot of like we pronouns here, we must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. And so it might be that he's willing to be shamefaced and appear cowardly and to flee for the good of others that he doesn't think he can protect. So though it's a lowly step and it's a shameful step, it may be motivated by a desire to protect those other guys. You know, Michael? Could it also be the weaving of the couple chapters prior and then skipping ahead, but the, the fact that the love that he has Okay, so 
what what we're going to see in the subsequent chapters, David is David has an enemy that's trying to take his throne, and he will not raise a hand against him. And it's it's going to drive his military commanders insane. They're just going to absolutely go bonkers because they won't let him fight. And he, and when his men do fight to to save his throne, David hates it. And so his military commanders are going to be like, "Dude, what do you want from us?" Like, and David is in a pinch. He is my son, therefore I cannot harm him. He is trying to usurp my throne, therefore I must defend myself. And he is in a terrible pinch. And I do think you're probably seeing the beginning of that. When David is, in, in the past, when David is given a fight or flight response as king, he always chooses fight. This time he chooses flight. And his, his reluctance to lay up, you know, bring a hand against his son is a huge part of that. No, no question. Suzanne? I'd say it's from a military standpoint, it says he left 10 concubines to take care of the palace, meaning he took everybody else. From the bakers to the, you know, all the servants. I mean, like, these are not the rough and ready men that he had in the wilderness before. Like, this seems like a very right. strategically bad choice. Yeah, yeah. Jerusalem does have a wall. There is some defense. Yes, Absalom probably knows what all those are. But at the same time, he's taking a whole bunch of people with him that are going to be very vulnerable. It is interesting. Jerusalem, you remember we that whole water shaft thing we talked about? Like, Jerusalem is an incredibly defendable city. And yet he's taken them all outside the gate. So it is interesting. Like David is in a he's in a tricky place. There's a lot happening here. It's hard to exactly evaluate. Not only not, I think his motives are relatively clear, but the wisdom of his decisions. So it's a little bit hard to come to a final conclusion on that. Okay, Terry. But isn't remember when we started this and and when they came in and told him the story um, when he had. Um, at the beginning of this, and we went through the story where um, that was referring to Cain and Abel, you, and it was so that you know, even though Abel, um, uh, Cain killed Abel, he was merciful. Yeah. To be um, messed with. That's right. So the same thing here, isn't it? Right. I think so. What you're saying is that we we had seen earlier that David was rightly attempting to be as merciful as God is, right? God had the authority to end Cain's life when he murdered his brother, but he didn't. He was merciful. He didn't, he didn't kill Adam. He didn't kill Cain. And David is walking in that pattern of, I have, the, I have the just authority to end your life, but I'm mercifully not going to do that. That's, so there's something about that that is commendable. Problem is, it seems like it's really wrapped up in David's emotional unhealth that we're going to see just on greater and greater displays we go here right but it, it, that i think to your point terry it's hard to sit in judgment on what what's the right thing to do sometimes you get yourself in a situation where there is no right thing to do and that's kind of where david is okay one more thing and then we'll go Catherine. i i just wonder if doing this will give the people time to see what's going on a little bit more time and maybe <clears throat> sympathize with their king that they love. Um, and so maybe, I don't know, just like public opinion yeah. turning around, maybe like they'll see why is this, but because it's the, I don't know, it seems like it was only the armies that Absalom uh, contacted. Yeah. Everybody just come on when you hear this. But what about the people? I, I... Yeah, so the, the, the claim, so Catherine asking, well, who really is on Absalom's side? We know what the army is doing. We know some things, but we don't have a total picture. And that's right. 
the, the statement that all of Israel's heart is turned to Absalom, that may or may not be true, right? And certainly as he leaves, David is going to have his loyalists. And we're going to see some of them kind of get called out by name. So let's, let's look at them now. Look at verse 19. So um, they're off and they go. The household leaves. And in verse 19, the king says to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner and exiled from your homeland. You only came yesterday. Today should I make you wander about with us. Okay. So David has one who wants to come with him. And he says, nah, don't, don't stay. You should leave. Uh, why would he do that? Why would he get rid of people? You know, he needs as many followers as he can. Why does he get rid of this guy? Chris? Uh, this is probably wrong, but um, my, my whole thought, especially with the last part, is focusing on how weird conspiracies are in other people's minds. Since we can't see them, we can't know intentions. My first thought is to, is to flee when I'm unsure because I know the Lord's going to be looking after me. And so if I were to put myself in David's shoes, I could see fleeing if I'm just going, I can't trust the gardener, let alone right. army outside. So let's just get everyone that we love and that we know to hold on to and get out. Yeah. You're a foreigner. Yes. Not really sure. So you can be fine here. We're leaving everything. I think you're exactly right, that, that from, from David's perspective, everything is uncertain. He doesn't trust anybody, right? And so this guy, he's new, he's a foreigner, maybe he's loyal. David knows from his own personal experience that it is possible to march under the banner of a king with disloyalty. He did it himself, right? You remember this whole thing with, you know, when he's hanging out with the Philistines, he's marching for them, but he's really planning on turning it around. There's lots of examples of this. And so this guy comes and he's like, I don't, I mean, maybe, but I don't know. Why don't you stay here, right? And he's not going to say, I think you're lying to me. He's like, hey, you know, take the afternoon off, right? So he's trying to be gracious. He's trying to be diplomatic, but he's not sure. He's afraid. And, and he has reason to be, right? There's a conspiracy afoot. However, he says, this guy Ittai says in 21, As surely as the Lord lives, wherever the, my Lord the king may be, life or death, there will your servant be. Which feels to me very, does that remind you of anything? Ruth. Doesn't that feel very Ruthy, right? Your God will be my God, your people will be my people, where you go, I will go. And I think David, I don't know if David hears that echo, but it, for whatever reason it works, right? And he, and he allows him to stay. And so David says, go ahead, march on. But I think what we're meant to get there is, Ah, David's skittish. David's afraid. David doesn't know who to trust. But the Lord really is with him. For all of the curse, for all of the judgment, the Lord is with him. And we're going to see a few more things fall David's way that he can't control. And so not all is despair. Kelly? The army is, my footnote, I wouldn't notice, my footnote says that the Gittite is the Philistine. The Gittite and the Philistines what? The Philistines. Oh, it, I didn't know that either. That's what that means? Which is exactly who David was, you know, being shady with. So interesting. I didn't know that either. Okay. So he's reason to be skittish. But in fact, I think that, I think that is, like we see all these homages, all these allusions here. That, I think you're supposed to think of Ruth when we see that. And that gives us some hope that it, just like we get reminded of Saul or reminded of these bad kings, when we get reminded of Ruth, we're like, oh, okay, that's good. And, I, and, and that's in fact how that plays out. Okay. So we got this Ruthy thing. And then you got this other guy. Look at verse 24. Zadok, Zadok, whatever. Zadok was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving, this, leaving the city. Okay, what are they doing? 
What are the Levites with Zadok? What are they doing? Say it again, Ann. Carrying the presence of God. Carrying the presence of God. They're carrying the ark. Okay? Should they be doing that? <laughs> Levites are the ones that are allowed to carry it. Right? They're not touching it. They're not, we're not doing the whole Uzziah. Is it Uzziah? What's his name? Uzziah. Yeah, they're not doing the Uzziah thing. So it's the right people in the right method. But is it the right activity? Well, that's the question. That's exactly the question. Where is the ark supposed to be? In his own room. Supposed to be in the temple, which is at the time is the tabernacle. God has said where he wants that ark to be. And what was, do you remember the answer? It's Jerusalem. It's not with the king. It's in Jerusalem. Kelly? Yeah. They're behaving as though the ark is supposed to fall. That's right. Falls the king room, but the king goes with That's right. It's God's, God's the ultimate king. So Jerusalem is his city. The ark represents his presence. And he's still going there. The human I wish you were on a microphone, okay? So this is exactly right. She, what she said is that they're behaving as if the ark follows the king around. But that's not it. The king follows the ark because the ark is the presence of the true king. And the true king wants his box in Jerusalem. And so Zadok, is, he's carrying it like it's an artifact, like it's a talisman. Like it's a, and do you remember back in the day when it was like traveling around and like, you know, it goes to this city and this city flourishes and it goes here and all that mess. Like, so he's like, hey, let's bring the good luck charm, right? And this is where David, Tommy, David has kind of been blowing it. This is going to be like where David is like, all oh, right, flex a little bit, David. Like, get it right. So, so watch this. Verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says that I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. This is a big deal. This is David who gets like, you blew that, you blew that, you blew that, you blew that. But there's this moment where really, truly, he has a heart that seeks the Lord. And he's like, don't bring me it like it's a good luck charm. Put it where God set it to go, right? And God is clear. The ark lives in Jerusalem, so put it back. And so you're like, all right, one for David, all right? It's good. It's a big deal, okay? Um, and so then he also says, though, okay, Kelly Sue? You sure? Well, you might be about to say that. Okay, well, I'll say it, and then you can jump in. Okay, verse 27. But David, remember, we've usually seen this beautiful braiding. When David's at his best, he's two things at once. He is trusting the Lord. He's seeking divine wisdom, not just human thought. And he is strategic and shrewd and, and makes, makes great decisions, right? We haven't seen that for a long time, but that's what he's about to do. He's like, number one, put the ark where it goes. And then number two, look at verse 27. The king also says to Zadok the priest, aren't you a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your son, whatever his name is, and this other kid. You and you guys, you take your two sons with you. And I will wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. Okay? Now, what, so what's, what is, Zadok, there's a couple of levels to this mission. What does it mean that he's a seer? What is that? He's a prophet. 
There, he has some supernatural ability. The Lord speaks to him in a peculiar way. There may be a message from the Lord. He wants that, right? That's good news, right? What else does he want him to do? <coughs> Go back to the city, right? And, and what's going to happen in the city? Do you, we don't know yet, okay? Do you know that the king Absalom is not going to stay in Hebron? He's coming to the city. And so David is strategically, he is wisely and graciously and humbly obeying the Lord. The, the box goes back to the city. But he also wants to have some insiders in the city. Because when Absalom comes in, it would be really handy to have some spies. And that's what he's doing. And so he's, gonna, he's beginning to arrange spies. And now we're like, all right, we got the seeking the Lord. You got your being strategic. I love it when you do this. And there's a glimmer. There's a glimpse. It still kind of gives, there's a little bit of what we used to love about David coming through. Cool? All right, a few more minutes. All right, let's check it out. So David continues up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered. He was barefoot. Mount of Olives, does that mean anything to you? What's the Mount of Olives? What's going on there? I mean, this is a significant place. The Olivet Discourse takes place. This is just outside. This is less than a mile from the city, right? There's a lot of Jesus stuff that's going to happen here, right, in the Mount of Olives. I'm not sure, you guys that have been to Israel, is Gethsemane there? Is it there? I mean, this is... It's all right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Is that right? Okay. So this is, this is holy land. This is a significant place. Okay. And uh, David had been told Ahithophel is coming with conspirators. So he prays, Lord, turn his counsel into foolishness. And this is when we get our, our fourth and final character. Verse 32. When David arrived at the summit of the Mount of Olives, where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him. His robe was torn with dust on his head. And David said to him, if you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city... And say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be, I'll be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. He's not exactly a spy. What do we call this character in these kind of conspiratorial dramas? What do you call him? He's a, a double agent. Yeah, he's like a mole. You know the idea of a mole? He's like, he's functioning as if he's on the team of Absalom but really he's functioning for David. So he's now going to have this really tricky assignment. You've got to give advice that sounds good enough that he follows it and thinks you're loyal to him, but in fact, it's going to burn him and it's going to help me. Would you go do that job? And the dude says, yes, right? And I think, well, what do you think, what do you think the narrator wants us to take from, what's his name, Hushai? From Hushai's willingness to take on this ridiculously dangerous and incredibly difficult role. What's the takeaway from that? That he is loyal to David, yes, but there's something even a higher level than that. Um, but, but he's loyal to God. This is like a further, a further um, saying of we're putting our trust in him. <coughs> well, sorry, that would have been loud. Yes, okay, that, exactly. David is going to put his hope in the Lord, and I think it, it gives us some hope that the Lord is with David. That things are beginning to fall his way. This is difficult. And he has reason to be like, well, it was nice while it lasted. In fact, he's already begun. Did you notice? I skipped over this. He's begun to call, Ab he changed Absalom's name. I missed it. Where was it? Did you hear what he said about Absalom? Uh, where the heck is it? He calls him King Absalom. Yeah, look at verse 19. Go back and stay with King Absalom. Holy cow, right? There's a sense in which is David giving up. But as he begins to kind of resume his place, there's some hope that maybe it's not over. Maybe there's going to be a chance that the Lord is with him. Things are falling into place. Um, Zadok is doing what he wants him to do. Ittai is doing what he wants him to do. Hushai is willing to take on this terrible, difficult role. And so, maybe. Maybe, just maybe. 
okay? And then there's one more detail, and I'll just hit this really quick. How far is the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem? Rifle shot. I mean, it really is. It's super close. You've been there, right? It's super close. It's less than a mile, okay? So knowing that David is less than a mile from the city, and he tells Hushai to go back into the city. And look what happened. Look at the timing of this. This is kind of understated. But uh, verse 37, it says, So David's friend Hushai arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. They are, they are ships passing. They are just crisscrossing. David is maybe a half a mile from the city as Absalom comes in and takes his throne. Which is to say, David barely escapes. And that might remind you of all the times that David barely escaped. Right? How many times was he just around the mountain and things work out? He's just right here and then Saul gets a phone call. You know, And it just, kinda, it just keeps playing out. And so as this chapter kind of comes to a close and we're like, well, King Absalom is in place and David blew it. We're just starting to think, well, maybe, just maybe... We're going to get out of this one somehow. And there's hope as we head to chapter 16. All right, good enough. Read chapter 16. We'll talk about it next week. We'll talk again. Yeah.